Welcome to another episode of Wampa Radio. This is episode number 21. It's a podcast about Star Wars Unlimited and all other Star Wars-related card games. We hit you with news, headlines, strategy, uh, other stuff. Last week, we got into uh, a musical debate about Jats, which is impressive to know now. If you ha- if yeah. you missed last episode, it was a it's a groundbreaking, canonically turbulent episode. So, so much so that Doa left. He's gone. Yeah, he's just gone. He said, "Listen, if we cannot refer to it by its rightful name, I don't want to be a part of it." I agree. I mean, you gotta. That's that's not true. He's no. just a busy man. He's but... a busy man. Yeah. So it's just so us. with that in mind. It is just us, and I, I guess this is the part where uh, I'm supposed to do the awkward transition where I say something about uh, what we're going to talk about this episode, and spoiler alert, it's going to be organized play. So Fantasy Flight, they had their really big organized play reveal stream, if you will, where they talked about kind of the ins and outs of their uh, plan going forward, so we're going to cover that. We also have a bunch of spoilers to go over, but... We also have the same thing we have every week, which is the Wampa Cave Pole of the Week. This week's Wampa Cave Pole, we'll have to wait for like a brief second here because do you remember last week when I mentioned that uh, when I was in Milwaukee, there was a wonderful person who came up to me at the tournament, at the Flesh and Blood tournament and said, Big fan of the show, and it turned out to be Wampa Radio that he was referencing. That player, yes. Guy Cohen, won the calling, the flesh and blood calling in Dallas, Texas. And if you want to know what a calling is, we will, to put it into perspective, good episode to put it against, it's like a uh sector qual is it a sector qualifier hold on a second we'll get to it eventually but it is on the level of a uh sorry a regional qualifier so it's the equivalent so the dude that we were talking about last week won the equivalent of a regional qualifier pretty big deal so i just want to get that out of the way but we do have a wampa cave pool of the week every sunday at wampa radio you can go ahead and submit your um Submit your your options. And again, like every week, uh, it was met with uh, friction. It was met with disgust. It was met with all kinds of stuff about how uh, we are very narrow minded. Uh, We don't we don't, you know, dive into the um, back pages of the glossaries to pick out characters that I'm very upset that you didn't include Luke with two U's. Yes, Luke. Yes, Swedish, Swedish Luke. Luke. Yeah. Well, look, I'm just saying this is that as a broad, uh, or trying to be a broader appeal uh, podcast, picking out somebody who had like, you know, three throwaway sentences in a book that was published 17 years ago, you know, we're, we're pay- taking characters that, you know, when you swing the bat, there's a good chance you're going to hit. So we took some of the more popular ones, much to the dismay of some others that are out there. But ultimately, I think that these characters are pretty effing rad. So suck it. That's what we chose. And you guys voted. Uh, so the question this week was, what Legends character do you want to see in Star Wars Unlimited? Legends obviously being 
the non-canonical stuff, like once the Disney acquisition right. happened. The options were Dash Rendar, Mara Jade, mm-hmm. Corin Horn, and Shizor. So, Charmer, who did you select? I, I, I went with the... Uh the only choice in my opinion which was Mara Jade i cannot begin to tell you how much that character changed my view of star wars uh not just from the you know the books and the material but also from our beloved decipher star wars card game and the reason for that is because when i saw the character like as a card so obviously it's you know portrayed as a person And it like really made it like, oh, that could actually be a thing I could see in the films because, you know, back then we didn't have, you know, TV series and, you know, 10 feature films and whatever. Like we we just had the the original trilogy. It really brought it to life for me. And it was just such a cool concept to me at the time. The idea of like the emperor had a, a secret apprentice. And then we get the card and decipher and the character looks badass and they have a purple lightsaber. This was like pre Mace Windu, mind you. Right. So I saw the purple lightsaber and I was I was in that was that was all I needed to know. It is like I liked the character before, but the moment I saw that decipher Star Wars card, I was just like, okay, this is this is my new favorite character in Star Wars. And it was for a very long time, obviously not canon anymore. So I can't really make that claim, but. This was an easy choice for me. If she was not on the list, I would have picked Dash Rendar. Um, I have uh, a lot of fond memories of early video games featuring Dash Rendar. And so that that's another easy choice for me. But Mara Jade just between the, the source material, uh, the idea of the, you know, the Emperor having a secret apprentice and then being the first time that I saw a purple lightsaber, I was just I was hooked. Well, Shadows of the Empire for the Nintendo 64 had that opening level, which was the Hoth level. And you want to talk about ways to get hooked on a video game? Give yourself that Hoth level to open up any video game. And I'm like, I'm in. Because it's not even a type of game where it's like, if you lose or you don't beat the game, it's like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll start over. And you got to start and go through the sluggish, crappy levels. And like, okay, they're too easy or they're too basic. It's like you almost felt happy when you lost because I'm like, oh, I got to start over. But I get to start with that Hoth level, which was awesome. But that Dash, then eventually Dash Rendar had to be on that like train level where you have to fight IG-88. Yeah. Impossible. That was so hard. So it was really hard. Hard. That, but you're right about Mara Jade. My resound- I voted for Mara Jade as well. And my resounding memory of Mara Jade pre-Star Wars CCG was reading one of the books. I forgot which one it was. It may have been I, Jedi. I sincerely do not remember which book it was from Legends canon, but it was how she lost her Force ways because she marries Luke in Mm -hmm. Legends canon, and she eventually loses touch with the Force. So I remember this scene in the book where Luke's trying his best to get her reconnected with the Force, and he's like, maybe some lightsaber play will get you there. And they start kind of sparring with the lightsabers, and eventually she starts to reconnect with the Force, but Luke gets kind of taken aback because the connection is to the dark side, which which was, as I was reading this, I was like, oh, that's so rad, and I... I, I It was was because of the background, right? Like, again, she's such a cool character, 
it's a shame that we don't have some modern equivalent, really. You well, know what I mean? so some of the comments that we got for this poll as well was the fact that, uh, again, I think Mara Jade um, is up there with Thrawn in terms of popularity. And they brought Thrawn back from Legends Obscurity and they got Timothy Zahn to rewrite a whole bunch of new Thrawn-related stuff. And he's obviously going to be the big bad of sort of the 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 middling post you know post original trilogy pre sequel trilogy kind of he's the big baddie in that sense and say what you want about his appearance i think that mickelson does an incredible job of playing an imposing thrawn but the fact it remains is that if they're gonna they're obviously not afraid to dig into that kind of lore and to bring legends out of retirement as it were mara jade's next on the list like it's that or it's like they're going to save her for some humongous type of thing. I listen, it's Disney. I know we're going to get her at some point. It's too much of a cash cow for them not to. I think my biggest problem, though, is that at this point, they've kind of exhausted all the avenues that really made her who she was. Right. We, we can't have her be Luke's wife or have any of that part. And the idea at this point of her being like a hidden you know, apprentice to the emperor doesn't really make a lot of sense because one, uh, we're we're well past all of the emperor stuff. But two, most people are just kind of tired of the emperor because he somehow came back and people just groan now when you think of any modern references to the empire because it got soured. Like I, I personally like I really believe that Ray's character was supposed to be our modern version of Mara Jade with a secret tie to the Emperor. It just was obviously not executed in a way that was as elegant and, and you know, thought out and whatever as Mara Jade was. And so if you do introduce a Mara Jade now, it will be, in my opinion, like in name only. And I feel like that might make me not care as much. I know? would. I kind of wish that in the same era where luke goes and trains grogu i want to see a storyline where and for the record i am a hundred percent for recasting luke cgi be damned they've recasted a bajillion different characters yeah, i give it, me sebastian stan oh for as, sure as he looks like 100 yeah so yeah, so much if you can do that like i you it, they're characters okay if you're going to get hooked on an actor playing a character, you need to separate that kind of reality that people age and you can't like you can't have Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones anymore as much as you can't have him play Han Solo from I get it with the if the, if the timelines line up, that's fine. But I, let me just finish this real quick. I just yeah, yeah. which is recast Luke. I want to see a scenario or a storyline where he's he wants to rebuild the Jedi Order, but he has to deal with all the sort of Sith Empire remnants first that are hunting him. And maybe he meets Mara Jade, who was an acolyte or, you know, one of those sort of force like dark force wielders that he then turns over and then loses. And like I can see that around the sort of he's she's there as part of building the temple, maybe part of why he got so freaked out about Kylo Ren, about Ben Solo turning to the dark side is because he saw it happen with Mara Jade and what he had to do with her and how that kind of happened and stuff like that. Like, I'm just giving you this for free. Yeah. This is all Listen, for free. I, I am fine with that. And I would even like it if going a step further, maybe she wasn't truly Sith to start. Uh, I love what they have done 
with Lord Balin as far as kind of giving us a window into gray Jedi, right? People who are not necessarily true Sith, uh, but they're not committed to the light either. Um, so I would love for her to be almost like a, you know, uh, kind of like a Ronin, right? Like I know that that term has kind of now been used in Star Wars canon, but just like the idea of she was wild. And so Luke does recruit her to help at the temple, tries to teach her ways of the light. And then I, I guess I would be fine with something like that. But I, I do, you know, you were speaking about like, you know, hey, actors being attached to characters. And I, I just keep like kind of chuckling to myself that, isn't it weird there are some characters that we say to ourselves like they're not allowed to be recasted or that person is, you know, that character in my mind. But then there are so many properties where not only are there multiple people who have played them, but it's almost like a, a passing of the torch thing, right? Like yeah. you think of we all have a favorite Spider-Man or a favorite Batman or a favorite James Bond. Yeah. And these are huge, iconic characters, right? And so don't get me wrong, like, I love Mark Hamill, and I really like Luke Skywalker, but I think it'd be pretty cool if, you know, during my lifetime, we got to have uh, a few other people take a shot at it. You know look, what I mean? Look how Ewan McGregor absolutely just elevated Obi-Wan Kenobi. And this is not to take anything away from Alec Guinness, who was that character, but I would argue that... Obi-Wan Kenobi is as much, if not more, Ewan McGregor's character than it ever was Alec Guinness's. And again, that's like saying, well, one's a, a 100 on 100 and the other's a 99 on 100. I'm not saying that one is trash. I'm saying that I'm pretty sure by now I would say that if you're saying which actor is Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's Ewan McGregor. That's who it is. I think he's yeah. – and it's not just a matter of he has more screen time as the character. I think that he – the life he breathed into the character, what he did for that character was better than Alec Guinness. And I, and I get it. Like there's a, there's a finality to it because everything you do as Obi-Wan Kenobi essentially then leads to that. It's, it's – to me, the biggest tragedy of Star Wars is that the sequels are printed and published and everything prior to that has to eventually funnel into that finality, which ruins a lot of it for me, unfortunately. But I, I think that much like James Bond, I have a favorite James Bond. It's Daniel Craig. And I've watched almost all of them. And I, I'm like – but that, but again, when you're t casting a new one in my head, I was like, dude, get like, get any of these other, get like Idris Elba, get this person, this person, that person, whatever. I'm like, I want to see what they bring to that character because right. Daniel Craig brought this visceral physicality to it, this ruthlessness to the character, whereas, you know, um, Pierce Brosnan brought this suave, snappy kind of, you know, a little bit more he's he's more happy to be james bond than the other bonds were you know yeah yeah he's he's got like the kind of playboy appeal yeah yeah right whereas daniel craig feels more like the assassin version of of bond he is very physical it's like iron man versus war machine you know yeah yeah it's kind of how it is like De pierce brosnan is tony stark he loves the playboy thing he loves the gadgets the craziness the the wisecracks Daniel Craig is War Machine in that I have the same access to the, the stuff you do, but I'm not going to be flashy about it. I just want to beat the piss out of you with as as 
effective in arsenal and, as yeah, possible. It, right? Like that's what it is. <laughs> like you ever like, you know when he's just that scene in Casino Royale, that opening cold open, that black and white cold open where the dude is, is kind of playing with him and challenging him and saying, Oh, you know, like the the second one is the hardest or the first kill is the hardest. And but he had already killed the dude in the bathroom. So he's like, he just shoots yeah. the guy and then he's like, Yes, quite. And then he just walks off. Boom. That sold me on that character. I was like, that is a completely different bond, but damn it, is it a good bond? And I think that you can do that with characters like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, I I just I it is something uh, until really this moment I hadn't really reflected on the fact that there are some franchises that for whatever reason feel like sacred and not even just to me but to millions of other people and yet there's so much joy that I've gotten in my lifetime from seeing multiple people portray a character. So all right, let's get to now, the results. Now that we're fully yeah, uh, we got results. let's get back on. So here are the results, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, it seems like most of us are on the same train, which is Mara Jade with 57.9% of the vote. Tied for second, Dash Rendar and Shizor, both of um, Shadows of the Empire fame, 15.8% apiece. Corrin Horn, way in the back uh, of X-Wing fame and i jedi fame who did become force sensitive cool cool little bit from the corn horn storyline um he had trouble using the force from like a telekinetic perspective and in one of his exercises he thought that he was moving this gigantic rock and he's like i'm doing it i'm doing it and then when he realized it it wasn't that he moved the rock it's that he persuaded everyone around him that he did so he realized that his his strength with the force was persuasion which i thought was a really cool scene as well so there you have it mara jade i think we can mara all agree jade. on that and then you know as you said dash rendar but i'm actually really surprised that dash was tied with Shizor, or as i like to call him uh Shizor, the black son formerly known as prince he was i mean he was a prince of the Black Sun. He yeah. had an entourage. He had, like, groupies. Shizor kind of looks like the symbol. <laughs> I bet he plays a mean guitar. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but I'm, I'm surprised he, he tied Dash Render. I would have thought Dash Render was going to be a clear second. I no. mean, I think Shizor's a really cool character. Don't I would have put Shizor second. I mean, he's the wow. he's like a he's like the job of the hut. Like, he's a crime lord syndicate, minus he, the he's grossness. He's an outstanding character. I just, I felt like Shadows of the Empire, specifically like the video game, would have elevated him a, a bit more in terms of popularity. Not in terms of, like, the character, just in terms of popularity. I and, mean, like, let's be honest, the more people are exposed to a character, the more likely they are to like said character, so... All right, so we're going to do a little bit of a different a little uh, swaparoo here. We're going to hit you with the spoilers before we give you the headlines because the headlines is essentially going to be the meat and potatoes of this entire thing. So let's start with the spoilers in chronological order as we get. The first one being it's a rare card, a seven-drop villainy vigilance, a ground unit, Count Dooku, a.k.a. Darth Tyrannus. It's a 5-4 force separatist sith he is shielded built in shielded and it says when played you may defeat a unit with four or less remaining hp i think that this card is amazing amazing i think that this card is really damn good 
this card is very good. If you're somebody who, uh, like me, is is coming from like the Elder Scrolls Legends, this feels very much like what you would have played uh, as a staple in mid-range sorcerer in that game, right? The the shielded keyword is just like ward in that game. So you get a body, you also get removal and it's 100% worth it when you're trying to take control of the board, wrestle for things. I, I think the card is outstanding. I do, however, find it very interesting as we consider, you know, flow of the game and potential mirror matches and things like that. I find it interesting that he has exactly <laughs> four health and then he defeats units with four or less health. And yes. it is a unit. It's not non-leader unit. It's not whatever. So, like, he can blow up leaders, too. But I do love the idea of you're, you're going to have these situations where, you know, Spider-Man the, first person, the first person to play Count Dooku might lose because it's like, all right, I play mine to, you know, get rid of a unit. And then they play theirs to get rid of my count. And then we just we keep going back and forth until... Yeah, you know, there's just one count remaining or somebody else stopped the count or whatever the case may be. But I, I do appreciate that he has exactly four health and that it's going to make some of those tense, you know, moments like really stand out gameplay wise. So I'm going to draw a parallel to this to Magic the Gathering. Um, Ixalan's Binding was a card that said basically uh, it was an enchantment that targeted another permanent and would basically exile it underneath that card. It would basically like eat that card. And the text said, while this card is in play, your opponent may not play cards that are the same as the one it ate. And if you played against another player that played Ixalan's Binding, they would Ixalan's Binding something of yours, and then you Ixalan's Binding their Ixalan's Binding, which would free up your unit, and then they couldn't play Ixalan Binding anymore. So it was definitely a game of chicken, much like, I don't know if you remember this, Charmer, at the height of... um, lightning briar for flesh and blood if you played mm. tome a gorganian tome yes Gor- gorganian tome was a card that basically said if you play it draw a card however draw an additional card for each gorganian tome in all of all of the graveyards and it was a legendary card so you could only play one so it's basically if your opponent played it first they draw one card but if you play it next you draw two so it was another game of yeah. chicken and if, let me let me just say, if you're not familiar with Flesh and Blood, cards are the premium currency in that game. Yes. So here, we're going to likely not have many situations where players are really fighting attrition because we get to draw two cards per turn. There's plenty of card draw baked into the game. The game flow is different. In Flesh and Blood, if a card says, like, draw a card, it's a massive deal. So getting to get to two for free was just insane well a lot of the card draw in that game was conditional um either the card that drew you a card had no inherent effect outside of drawing you a card or it was conditional it's like okay draw two but they have to be this color and you can put them in your hand or draw two and you have to be two different types and you put it into the like it it wasn't easy to draw cards and or it isn't easy to draw cards in that game um anything else on count dooku before we move on uh no I think that just about covers it. I think that it is a a fantastic card. It's a rare for a reason. It will see uh, constructed play. It'll absolutely see limited play. It's going to be a bomb in that format. It's just a good card. All right, you're up. So next up, we have Bosk. This is a five cost cunning and villainy ground unit. Has a four five stat line with the tags underworld and bounty hunter. Also has Ambush, 
So when you play it, you can ready it and attack another unit. But the next line of text is what really has me excited, which is when you play an event, you may deal two damage to a unit. And I love everything about this. One, because it's a unit. So again, if you want to self-wound, for example, for um, grit or any of those other mechanics, then you can absolutely do so. It's also when you play an event, so you can get multiple triggers from this. It immediately creates a, a board state of tension where... If you lead off with this and you still have resources, it's late in the game. Your opponent now has to say, OK, I have, you know, the back and forth actions. So I have this action to deal with it or he's going to start getting value. Right. So uh, I, I really like the design of this card. It makes me start thinking about all the ways that you can, you know, play this and then maybe play cheap actions or things like that. It's in cunning. So, you know, there are going to be some. Uh, it's just a really well-designed card. This is a mage card, if I've ever seen one in my life, uh, minus the ambush aspect. But basically, I'm talking Hearthstone, obviously, um, or the cards. K-A-R-D-S TCG has a similar card called Commando Number no. 1 or something like that. Basically, this is a card mixed with Cunning that makes – it is a very much a Cunning card because Cunning is all about – it's all about trickery. It's all about disruption, and what you see is not necessarily what you get. You drop Bosk, maybe you attack a unit for an easy trade or whatever, but the ultimate part about this is that now you're starting to protect Bosk because Bosk is in himself an engine. And when you say an engine in card games, I mean something that will generate – additional value over time the longer it's on the board the more value it gets it's an engine card if you're a gwent player you know exactly what i'm talking about for bosk with cunning i want to see what more of the trickery cut type cards are the bounce effects the tap a unit type effects the things like that that's what i want to see because a four or five stat line for five is nothing great the ambush tag on it still so so it's the fact no, that i think well, uh, I, I was well, look, <laughs> I like the ambush thing, but the way that I view this and I view cunning is you put Bosk and maybe some other thing that has a when you play an event type of thing, you're going to be playing your events to essentially keep them on the board while you're poking away and dealing damage with stuff. Like, I, I think that Bosk is probably going to be a, a, a more protected card that you want to keep on the board. But then again, if your opponents are not playing you know like this is a card where once it gets to aggro and bosk is on the board like forget it like it, it, aggro is gonna have to pack it up so i i didn't mean to uh roll over you but i just wanted to highlight something which i actually think is very important with this card i love that ambush is on this card and i think it's actually very important because he allows himself the opportunity to protect himself uh, again, this is an attacker chooses targets game. And so if your opponent has readied units on the ground, you either have to wait for them to expend all their actions before you can safely deploy Bosk or do something else where you are just playing him as bait, et cetera, et cetera. But because he has ambush now, if your opponent only has one ready unit, he can come in and immediately get rid of anything that would have threatened him, right? You don't have to worry about the crackback unless they themselves have ambush or something. So he is helping to pave the way on the ground as a way to protect him. And then on top of that, if you can protect him on the ground, because his ability is not ground specific, you can then use him to shoot down all of the starships. Like that's the other beauty here. It's not just <laughs> do damage to another ground unit. It's any unit. So Bosk, if you can keep him, 
you know, nice and safe on the ground. He's basically, you know, doing anti-air shots into space. It's wonderful. Never knew a Trandoshan can do that. Uh, or a Trandoshan or whatever you want to. Is it Trandoshan or Trandoshan? Uh, I've always said Trandoshan. I'll but... say Trandoshan as well. Um, one of the targets that he may be looking to snipe out of the out of the sky is, uh, frankly, kind of gross because you don't want to be shooting <laughs> this next thing. It's a civilian craft. It's a four-drop heroism command ship. It is the Bright Hope a space unit, the last transport. And when they say that, they mean the last transport is away. That is meaning the evacuation of Hoth. It's a rebel vehicle transport. It's a 2-6. It has Sentinel. I don't know why a transport vehicle would have Sentinel. (laughs) I think it would want to hide behind Sentinel, um, thinking from a lore perspective. But it also says, when played, you may return a friendly non-leader ground unit to its owner's hand. If you do, draw a card as an uncommon i think that this is really good again command wants to slow things down they want to play the long game by bouncing a card back into your hand you're doing one of several things number one if that card was going to die because it took a lot of damage you have now rescued it it redeploys with full health the other thing is what if something has a very strong deploy effect what if something has a uh like Palpatine, let's say. Maybe you bounce Palpatine, drop him, and do a crap load of damage to a lot of different things. So it's another way to get an on-play effect to happen again. Uh, I think I think Bright Hope in command is going to be pretty good. I, I agree. Uh, and if I'm being honest, even without the when played, I think it's going to be pretty good. Uh, a two-stick stat line so far for what we've seen for space units is actually kind of big. Uh, you kind of have to go to either some of the premier ships or capital ships to get to that six uh, health being threatened portion. And two damage is definitely enough to threaten most uh, opposing TIE fighters, for example. So just a two six Sentinel is a pretty big wall that they're going to have to push through. And then on top of it, as you said, lots of utility. You can save a unit from dying. You can uh, get the effects of when played again. Uh, but it is also, you may, it is optional. So that part is also not a requirement. Um, but the the draw card is uh, very relevant. I don't think we're going to be card starved, but just because we're going to have a lot of opportunities to draw cards doesn't mean you're always going to draw what you're looking for. So there are definitely scenarios in any card game where you need to dig to find an answer to something. And this would, uh, again, potentially provide a way to do that. So uh, I, I think this is a, a very quality card and it'll find a home somewhere. Next up, I'm very excited about this. This is actually one that when they were, when we got spoiled the artwork many moons ago, I was like, okay, give me this card immediately. Tell me what it is. Oh, I was going to let you do this one. All right. That's very kind of you. Cause this is one of I, my, I, I know I was going to let you do this one. That's very nice of you. I appreciate that. So this is the next one, which again was spoiled from an artwork perspective many moons ago. This is Wedge Antilles, a five drop uh, ground unit, command and heroism. What remember? I said, I think we were predicting it, right? I think, did you say command and heroism? I think you did. I said, uh, I said uh, heroism aggression, I think is what I said. Yeah, I think that is what you said. And I think I said command just because of his his abilities on the battlefield if that makes sense well 
he's a five five. Uh, so this guy, this guy funks, if you know what I mean. He's yeah. a five five um, rebel. That's all he's got. Each friendly vehicle unit gets plus one, plus one, and gains ambush. This is awesome. Um, so it's another one of those uh, tribal leaders, I guess. It's for, for vehicles in that sense where all your vehicles are going to get a buff. And they get ambushed too. Dude, Wedge is uh, Wedge is a pretty big deal. And he's got a great stat line for his cost. Like this is this is a very good card. I am excited to kind of build around it. There's a lot of cards that when you're looking at them, if you can imagine them suddenly having ambush, you you look at them completely different from an evaluation standpoint. And so as we get more and more of the set revealed, you'll just have to kind of keep in the back of your mind as you look at any of the vehicle cards like, OK, well, what if I'm playing wedge? Right. How does that change what I'm getting out of this vehicle? And I just I, I really like what he enables. Um, his effect is powerful enough that like when you play him, even though he by himself doesn't really do much, you still force your opponent to like have an answer or want to deal with him sooner rather than later. So he's just, he's fun. He is fun. Um, I can't wait to get a hold of this bad boy. Cause he looks so damn like, you know what he, that his facial expression now is him knowing that many years down the road, when you're up against the reincarnated Palpatine on Exegol, he is going to be relegated to a gunner seat and he's not even going to get his own ship. And all he's yeah, going to he say does, is... He does look very sad, yeah. yeah. He's going to say, nice shot, or good shooting there, or whatever the hell he says. I It breaks my heart that arguably the most feared pilot in the history of the galaxy is relegated to, like, a gunner pod and isn't even given an X-Wing. Like, get real. But whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, we don't know what happened between now and then. Maybe, you know, he, he started to go blind. He he's shooting he's they gave him a huge cannon it's like give the blind guy the cannon but yeah <laughs> okay just just do hey, the hey, next two just speaking, do the next two. speaking of you know blind firing this next card has got some troopers on it <laughs> uh th this card is interesting this is one of the reasons that i wanted to do this card uh as well uh it is the 97th legion it is a ground unit that costs seven but his only command, it has a zero zero stat line, but it does have Imperial and Trooper tags. And then the text says this unit gets plus one plus one for each resource you control. So there's a lot going on here that we kind of haven't seen before. First, uh, as far as I know, this is the first kind of Stormtrooper or Imperial Trooper unit we've seen that is not villainy this is just straight command so you can run this in your heroism command decks if you want no harm no foul but the other thing that jumps out to me is that being in command right you are going to likely be playing this in your ramp decks you want to be ramping up which also means when this comes down it's likely a seven seven for seven with only upside if you're going late into the game uh, this could very much be the the sort of card that becomes a big finisher. Um, I I don't know if it's going to be good enough when it doesn't have any other keywords, right? So I will be kind of paying attention to what else interacts with uh, Imperial and what else interacts with Trooper. Um, 
but th this was this one was weird to me like i i like it i like what it does in the aspect of command but i was very surprised to not see the the villainy tag on this one yeah, when there's no other keywords associated to it, it, it kind of loses a little bit of its luster. If it doesn't have something like overwhelm, um, uh, is that what is it overwhelm? Yeah, uh, yeah. For, for this game. Yeah, sorry, I, I get it mixed up with trample and overrun and whatever, but and, yeah, and yeah. breakthrough. No, it's very easy to do because it exists in, in Every, yeah. all of the games. Yeah, um, this is a card again. If you get this in the first three or four turns, you're just turning it into a resource. Like, the, you don't wait on this card because the upside on it is very late game. Um, so, in my opinion, I'm thinking that this is a card that, yeah, you'll include, but it, it's just fodder. It's like resource fodder. You're going to have cards in your deck that you are you don't care about too much. You know, like, I feel like 50% of your deck are going to be doing the heavy lifting and the other are going to be support cards this is a support card having it on the board is like a 10 10 feels like a you feel like a boss because you could just take out anything on the board and yeah it becomes problematic uh the other reason why i think that this card might be pretty good is the fact that uh like you said it's attacker chooses target so if you just go face you just go face and that's there's yeah. nothing they, they can do about they, it they gotta have a sentinel or something to stop it and where i really see it shining it's a shame doe's night here for this but uh, in limited this card could be the kind of bomb that you would take highly in a pack if you already know that you're in command so think like pack two pack three you're already in command you might have a ramp card or two and this is only an uncommon it might even get passed to you you could you could take this pretty early in a pack and have this meant to be your finisher because it's got a huge stat line and in in limited you're not going to have likely as many ways to deal with this um I could see this definitely becoming the kind of, you know, limited all-star finisher just because you're more likely to see this than some of the rare bombs, right? I I agree on that. Um, it's not like magic where if you have a 10-10 without trample, like they'll just throw a weenie in front of it and just chump block it all day long if they can. Yeah. So without that, you're fine. And there's no flying in this. So you can't fly over a creature. Sa saboteur? Yeah, saboteur is kind of like flying. I suppose. All right, you're up. All right, the next one is a mission briefing. This is an event card, has the plan tag, costs three in aggression, and it very simply says choose a player, they draw two cards. Now, obviously, you can target yourself with this if you want some more gas, but I do like the fact that you can target an opponent and further mill them. Uh, there's a lot of mill options in Vigilance already. Uh, this would be like the more offensive version. Now, we did go back and check the rules, right? It's you take three damage per card that you're supposed to draw, but cannot. So late game, this is equivalent to pay three, deal six to your opponent. But also, again, could be used to refill your own hand. There's uh, a little bit of versatility here, and I dig it. I think this card is great. It's essentially Arcane Intellect from Hearthstone, but much better. Uh, pay three, draw two. On your side, no problem. But if you are playing the mill version of a deck, or if you're looking to mill, if that's your outcome, that's your win condition, this is going to be, if if aggression is part of that package, by all means, it's very important to either draw up to your important cards, or late game, you draw this off the top, and you see that your opponent has one or no cards left, you 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 get them to draw and then essentially 
the so again the rules state whenever you are to draw a card and there is no card there you take three damage to your base and you draw two cards a turn keep in mind so you are just putting them so much closer you it's like 20 percent of their life total right like off a 30 Mm -hmm. health base or potentially less if it's a 25 uh health base so mission briefing good card uh okay wow he is angry uh next up (laughs) next up is a two cost villainy command unit is a ground unit general taji or tagi or general t mr t uh it's mr t who pities the fool because he is a concerned commander and how is he pitying said fool well he's doing so as a 2-2 imperial official and when played give an experience token to each of up to three trooper units we have trooper tribal uh there are plenty of those and experience tokens are essentially plus one plus ones right and they count as upgrades which i learned so there we go general taji um low to the ground it's a two two get it out early which can be problematic because i would prefer this card as like a four drop with bigger stats because if you're playing this on curve you probably don't have three troopers to to buff up so it's a li- it can be awkward on curve but picking it up mid game to late game is not going to crush you i actually kind of like that it is a smaller unit and you just kind of know you're not going to play it on curve. But what it does open up is, you know, if turn one, you know, you start with your two resources, maybe you play a, a two drop trooper, right? Turn two, you play your second trooper. Turn three, because you start with, you know, two resources, we're up to four resources at that point. So you start with another trooper for two, and then you slap him down as your other, and then you, you've spent two to get five, five in stats. Like that could potentially be... Yeah a very quality opener that you would not like you would be one more turn delayed if he was like a four, four that did the same thing at four cost or whatever. So I I do kind of like that you can pair him with another small play within a singular turn and still get some of that value. I think you're spot on there. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, In which case you're not necessarily playing him on curve, but just like just after curve, which is fine. Um, Yeah. Sometimes your curve is too, two drops on you know four resource turns right i just don't know what command is going to do for like a trooper like a a trooper go wide sort of swarm variant like a a swarm archetype but then again i'm not sure uh we shall see he feels like a selesnia type of character like a yeah a green white in magic type of thing. that's exactly what he feels like because you know, green also has ramp, but it also has the ability to go wide with elves or whatever. Tokens, Putting counters, yeah. Aprilings. Plus one, plus so one. That, yeah. that is exactly what it feels like. All right. Um, next up, which is interesting to me because the previous card was an uncommon. It was number 80 of 252. The next card is a, uh, sorry, yeah, the previous, General T was an uncommon 80 of 252. The next card is a common number 81 of 252. So I don't know if this tells us anything that like it went that that's where the threshold is between uncommon and common. If you're doing all the funky sort of math and putting this on the that, bingo card. That assumes that they are grouped by rarity. I believe every card game that I've seen typically is from what I understand. Well, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm, I'm I just went by uh a past week of sorting all my flesh and blood cards and putting them in binders by the number 
and it has always gone by class and then rarity. So we shall see. But it is the Shore Trooper, which um, Charmer has just now deleted from the screen, which is fun. <laughs> There's no way I deleted that. You did. It's gone. So hit uh, hit control Z so you can break. Thank yeah, you so much. You're, you're fine. <laughs> I didn't even know I was clicked on it. It is the seasoned Shore Trooper. Uh, it's a two-drop uh, ground unit, command and villainy, a 2-3 Imperial Trooper. While you control six or more resources, this gains plus two, plus zero. So it's a 4-3 for two when you're uh, in that mid-game state, which is a very good stat line for what you're getting. Not to mention, it's a trooper, plays with the trooper tribal. So uh, this one was also revealed by Max Tapera. So thank you, Max. I think that this card is something that might see constructed play in a set one if you're looking for a low to the ground unit that feeds into your ramp game plan right again two three stat line helps fight pretty well for early board if you've already ramped up and you draw this late game it's not a total loss you know you pay two to get a four three it's not terrible um or if you really don't want it you can always resource it as, as well i think that it'll end up being like power crept out of the, the ramp decks the only other consideration is uh, as you said a trooper tribal what does that look like is there some sort of synergy with uh you know six or more resources within the the trooper tribal further on down the line who knows but um there there are limited applications i think long term and constructed I, I just feel like this gets power crept out, but it'll get it'll likely get power crept out. Um, most of the commons, I think, will by even just by virtue of the fact that there'll be an uncommon that probably has a better stat line for the, the but we'll actually get to power creep in part of the conversation later. Um, I want to get to the next one. So hit us with the next one. See, well, before we do, oh. I I thought I remembered this. So I had to go look it up. This is why I deleted the thing from our notes by accident, because I was pulling up <laughs> Do it. the wonderful, the amazing SwooDB.com. Wonderful. So I could go go look up. Uh, Friend of the show, a, SwooDB.com. A card that had already been spoiled, because my assumption is that these are grouped by aspect pairings, similar to the way classes are done in Flesh and Blood. Uh, so when we saw General T, that was a command villainy uncommon at 80. Then we got Season Short Trooper, Command Villainy, Common at 81. And Blizzard Assault ATAT is a Command Villainy Uncommon at 88. So it goes Uncommon, then there's a Common, then Damn there's it. Uncommons. And that's not alphabetical as far as their names go either. Damn it. Uh, those are also all three ground units. Um, what are you so doing? I, my, I, I don't know what the, the numbering uh, means, but the reason I wanted to bring it up is because that also means that some of the assumptions that we've been making, you know, as the community are, are based on things that we may or may not know the actual answer to. <laughs> so for, I think it was for Uprising, when Uprising came up for Flesh and Blood, I wrote an article for Channel Fireball about my theory that there was going to be a fourth hero in it. And I went through all the numbering of certain cards that came out. I went and put it against previous sets and how it was divided. I came up with this whole thing about how there's going to be a fourth one. And they published it, and people thought it was pretty reasonable. And then there was none. And I looked like a donkey. So it's just how it goes. 
All right. This next card does not look like a donkey. No. This was uh, a card that when they showed it on the screen, it was actually part of the uh, organized play rewards. So we got to see the kind of OP variant where it's got the cool faded thing. It's not quite the hyperspace variant. It's got that organized play kind of fade on the borders. Um, but the card itself is outstanding. This is the Green Squadron A-Wing. So first of all, shout out to A-Wings being amazing. Uh, this is a space unit, costs two. It's in Heroism and Aggression. It has a 1-3 stat line. Uh, the tags are Rebel, Vehicle, and Fighter. So Vehicle, shout out to Wedge. Uh, now, this 1-3 stat line also has Raid 2. So this is a, a two drop one three, but it's swinging for three. And that's, you know, with a three health and being able to swing for three, um, I, I think this one is actually very solid where it would fit. Uh, it's likely going to be, I think, compared to a card like Cantina Braggart. But the fact that this has that one attack so that units can't cleanly attack into it without taking some sort of retaliation is, I think, what separates this. I'm not impressed with this card um and maybe it's because my expectations of what the stat lines should be for a two aspect card are maybe just a little bit polluted by other card games and what i'm thinking i'm thinking of this as like you know look at magic if you have a, if you're looking at a magic card that is a let's say a two hard locked color card like drop um, like one red, one blue, or two black, or something like that. I'm thinking of like, um, there's a card from Aether Revolt. Uh, it's a vampire. It's a double black, but it's a death touch lifelink 2-3 vampire or something. Like, it it does everything. To me, a double aspect 2-drop should be a 3-3 three, three out of the box. Like, that's how I, f I foresee it. Now, I get it. It's an A-Wing, so it's it's meant to, like, have a little bit more aggression on it. It's meant to be an interceptor. Um, if you catch it off guard, it's probably going to take a beating. In my opinion, I think that this is a card that should have been, like, a 2-3 saboteur. That's how I see it. G you know, dig into the fact that it's meant for speed maneuverability infiltration interception it's not meant to be a b-wing or a y-wing it's not meant to blast you out of the sky but i get the raid aspect from the perspective of it comes in out of nowhere it's super fast maneuverable it might surprise you so it, it's the ambush element of it might give it there but i'm still i think i'm just still out of skew when it comes to what a two aspect card should be should return for you stat wise but that's just me well i think one of the other things that you have to factor into the equation is the disparity in stats between ground units and space units uh, so far space units feel like they have less stats per cost for whatever reason now that that might just be because we haven't had the right ones revealed yet uh, that's also why I think Bright Hope is as good as it is, because that 2-6 is actually pretty relevant. Because, again, when you are comparing this to, like, a TIE Fighter, that's a 2-1-1 a one, one drop. Uh, but most of our X-Wings even are 2-3s, so they don't kill this outright. And then it, if it's attacking into them, though, right, if this is attacking into an opposing X-Wing, it will kill it and survive. So in that regard, just based on what we've seen so far for, like, the cheaper space units 
I, I feel like this is actually better than it looks. I'm coming around to it, I suppose. Um, then again, this doesn't speak to Flake as a that my ideology as a control player, as a drawn out right. slow player. Because when I saw that when I see something like raid, I'm like, ah, I don't care because I don't. I often am. I'm an attacker of opportunity and not an attacker out of necessity. If you know what I mean, like if if, yeah. if that speaks to you. So when I see the first of all, the the A wing is like my all time favorite starfighter like i love it um so seeing it as an aggression unit i get why i'm just i'm personally disappointed because it's not a command or cunning or some type of trickery control related well, card but I think, also, it was, I think it's still good this is the green squadron a-wing we might get other ones i think we'll get a cunning one uh, I, I would be shocked if we don't get a cunning a-wing at some point well i mean green squadron was like sort of the the squadron at the battle of endor like they were the a-wing squad so um i'm waiting for i'm totally waiting for an event that says defeat one of your a-wings to defeat one of your opponent's uh capital starships or something just like fly it into the bridge i think that'd be pretty cool uh all right last but not least again sorry that wasn't was that a-wing was revealed on today today being the 25th of october uh the ffg stream regarding op they revealed that card they also revealed this one the academy defense walker a unit for the ground a six drop it is vigilance it is villainy a five five imperial uh, imperial vehicle walker texas ranger it's a sentinel and it says, when played, give an experience token to each friendly damaged unit. Now we're seeing a lot of this self-wounding stuff. This, I hit me, I hit you. We all sing Kumbaya, but I'm getting the better end of the deal here. This Academy Defense Walker, uh, as a 5-5 Sentinel that just builds everything up for you. I feel like this is what a lot of those self-wounding decks are going to be. It's like, okay, once we get that Walker, we're in business. Well, between this and then like Krennic as well, that's the first thing I thought of. It's like, okay, I'm running this in my Krennic deck. And I love both that this buffs the things you're already self-wounding, but that this also has Sentinel. So they have to go through this to get to the units that you may have been purposefully weakening to increase their power. So I imagine that if you're running any sort of deck where you've got grit on units and you're running Krennic and things like that, and then you play this, it's not even just that this, you know, buffs your entire team, but it also protects them so that you get, you know, greater payoff for your risk versus reward ratio that you're doing there, right? Because ultimately, any of the situations where you're wounding your own units, um, you're taking that risk for a bigger payoff, right? You're saying, okay, my stuff's going to be easier to get rid of, but I'm going to deal more damage with it. And this kind of helps solve all your problems. So for a common, I'm actually pretty impressed by this card. Stat-wise, it's not great. Six for only a 5-5. Five five. Um, you know, not the best, especially for dual aspect. But when you consider the role this likely has in the appropriate deck, I do envision this finding a home. I'm, uh, again, um, self-wounding stuff has never been my my go-to. I'm a creature of habit. Um but I think that in the common slot, it's going to be hard to build around this unit, I think, in 
in limited like this is not going to be a card that you're going to be like oh this is going to like just shore up this idea that i have unless unless you happen to find it late in that and you're sort of building around Selfoon. otherwise you're kind of playing this as a five five sentinel which in limited can be backbreaking yeah i was just gonna say honestly in limited that might just be good enough especially the common slot because five five is a pretty significant stat line and sentinel i think is going to be very sought after in set one limited for sure dude how many times have you done like a hearthstone arena run where you're playing against a dude and he just he just drops like a vanilla like eight eight taunt unit and you're like i can't get through that i cannot yeah. get through that i have no li- i have no removal it's just a gigantic body that is just gonna pound me in the face until i i donate enough souls to it like it's in, in the elder scrolls legends and set one in particular there was and if you're if you're an old tussle fan and you're listening i'm about to give you ptsd there was a card called hive defender and it didn't have any relevant like tribal interactions, keywords, whatever. It was just a four cost three six with guard, which was like that version of taunt, right? That's it. But it turned out big body with taunt or guard or whatever was good enough. Yeah. And that is and totally where I could see a, a unit like this, you know, falling in terms of in, in limited. Sometimes just having a big five five that your opponent has to attack into is annoying enough dude taz dingo the three five taunt for three drop four drop whatever that thing was an all-star it was like the chillin yeti um just drafted all right so that is all the spoilers that we got up until today again being october 25th uh anything that comes out after this we're not responsible for it is currently 7 21 p.m eastern standard time so too bad that's where we're at uh let's get to the main topic charmer which is essentially going to be the stream that we saw. This was the stream that I was most excited for. The product stream was really great. Obviously, all the streams are great. But this is the one that I think you, me, Doa, we all agreed was going to be incredibly important for the type of card players that we are, which are competitive, career-driven, things like that. This is basically the stream where they laid out the plans of like, hey, you want to play for keeps? This is the scenario so the organized play stream from the uh, ffg youtube channel occurred today uh it was xander tabler leading the discussion josh massey was there as well and they led off with what you initially encountered at gen con which is the c3 op mantra yeah so this was something that i had noticed right away when i went to gen con because they had it on their shirts like on the sleeves and i First at glance, I did what everybody I'm sure has done, which is you're like, oh, it's a like a C3PO thing. But then I was like, no, it's C3OP. And so I asked him, I asked Xander, I was like, hey, you know, what what is that? And they said, oh, that's, you know, our mantra for this game and really all of Fantasy Flight going forward, right? Like they want their their card games to allow people to connect, collect, and compete. So connect, obviously that community building, that kitchen table fun, just being social, having a good time. Collect, obviously, it's a trading card game for a reason. You get together, you trade, you find your collections. We now know that they're putting a big emphasis on that because of the hyperspace variants and all of that fun stuff. And then compete, which is you know the, the tournaments, right? How do I showcase my skill? How do I get better at the game and so on? And so I, I love that they have decided to put an emphasis on you know this c3 op kind of mantra platform however credo however you want to describe it i think it's really cool 
So they also re rehashed essentially that graphic of the three different types of tournaments leading into the Galactic Championship. But the most important part is that they broke down so much about what yeah. the organized play situation is going to be. Um, so we're going to go through them as it was kind of described in the in the uh, video and kind of talk a little bit about the importance of it frankly and the first thing is that it's going to be a tournaments are going to have a point system which i think is not all that weird anymore uh it's nothing different but the tournament points are basically what gets you qualified for bigger events and it's not like oh you won a tournament you get x amount of points it's where did you place in the tournament and a lot of those situations are also going to be scaled up based on how many people are in the tournament so it's not just a top eight it might be top 16 it might be top 32 it's based on how many people are playing in that particular tournament but what i like about this charmer is that you know you me there's a lot of players like us that are very good card players, but are not like world-class elite. We will place very well in tournaments, but we're likely not going to win the big ones. But that doesn't mean that we're not good enough to play in the Galactic Championships or those types of those top echelon tier tournaments. So we'll be able to go have something to play for finished like hey dude it's like hey, i finished 12th it's like well i got x amount of points i only need x amount more to qualify for the big one so i really like the tournament point system uh with this i like it for a couple of reasons and you've hit the nail on the head right what at first what it does is it allows people to really find new ways and new avenues to qualify for things which allows them to continue to engage with the game but i want to take it a step further which is that uh, card games absolutely have skill involved with them, but they're also still card games. There is a, a level of randomness and variance built in. That's one of the things that attracts us to it, but that can be frustrating if you are a very good player who just misses the window, right? So Flesh and Blood, for example, we're right in the middle of ProQuest season right now, and I have to win a ProQuest event to qualify for the Pro Tour that's uh, going to be in March of next year. Now, in seasons past, for example, I have finished second. I had one season where I finished second three times during the qualifier season, but only the winners qualified. And this is something that would solve that, where maybe I am really consistent, but I'm just like not getting over the hump. You know, I'm not catching a break this way or that. And so this is really rewarding the players for their consistency, but also when you're at events, I've also been at events where literally like if you lose round one because of tiebreakers, you know, like, hey, I'm I'm not making the cut, right? Like this is for whatever reason, like this is my tournament. I lost in round one. I'm, I'm just under. It might even be like you start two and two, but because you've lost uh, twice early, there's no point in playing like the last four rounds. You already know that you're not going to make the cut. This encourages and incentivizes people to continue playing and continue engaging with the game even when you might not make like the you know top eight cut or whatever you as you said you can still get points right you are rewarded for playing the game and i know that's a novel concept but <laughs> like that is that is something that i think is is very very important to stress so let's talk about the different echelons as they describe them and gave you a little bit more detail as to what those are the first one being the planetary qualifier and um as as Interesting as the descriptor of like, well, it's wider, but it's thinner. So it means X, Y, Z. I'm going to give you some constructive criticism, FFG. There's 
it, we look at this and it's all just rectangles to us. Like it, it's we look. I'm sure a lot of people just kind of forgotten a lot of that stuff. But uh, here's the thing. I I would like to counter that with. Um, it was easy for me to dismiss it until I knew what it meant. But now every time I look at it, that actually helps me remember. I suppose it is a it's, a it's a very subtle thing. Yeah. But I actually appreciate that they've done it because the number of times where I've said like. I don't remember if it's regional or sector. I will literally pull this graphic up and go, all right, which one's the short fat one or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So the planetary qualifier, which is very wide, but very shallow, means that it's uh, wide in terms of the accessibility, but shallow in terms of the reward, uh, I think is what it means. So basically the planetary qualifier is what we would put akin to. Um, um, it's a store-based tournament. So I would put this in something like uh, I would probably put it above your local armory. It's not like an armory, I would say. I'd say it's more so like your road to nationals, your pro quests, your your RCQs, your any of your um, your skirmish sort of season. Yeah, that's what skirmish. Was... Yeah, your local turn, your local store related tournament. Like your LGS is going to have a tournament that's going to be bigger than their weekly shenanigans that they're going to have. That's your planetary qualifier. What can you get with it? Well, you get, uh, basically what they said on the stream was that if you win that event, you will get enough points to qualify for galactic championships. So there is still something at stake. You still want to win it because it's a guaranteed ticket to the big show. Um, However, it has also been said that for set number one, they're not having any planetary qualifiers, which is interesting to me because it's the smallest iteration of a big tournament, you know? Yeah, I think it's because, and we're going to touch on this a little bit later when we start talking about timing, I think it's because we have a compressed window for the first year. Because it's release year and the game doesn't even release until March, and knowing what we know from some of the other things they've mentioned, I don't think they're going to do any planetary for set one because they're going to just jump into some of the, the larger events. Because, again, if and all right, so I'll just say it like spoiler alert or whatever. Right. But there's uh, galactic stuff that's supposed to be in the summer of 2024. Right. So if you launch in March and then you're having a summer event, you don't have a lot of time to run those planetary ones in that window, but then going forward, right? So for that 2024 to 2025 season, when you get your full calendar year, yeah, I fully expect us to get them. But I think this is literally just a victim of the timing. I I, I think so as well. Uh, it's just weird because, I mean, you know, if they release the game in like December, like we all want it to be, then we'd all be geared up and ready to rock and roll for all these big tournaments. But we get it. We get it, FFG. We're not going to complain. Uh, hit us with the next one there. Yeah, so after the planetary qualifier, there are the sector qualifiers. So again, um, slightly less accessible, but more rewarding as far as the tournament points go and things like that. Uh, Flake has in the notes that these are kind of akin to uh, battle-hardened events in Flesh and Blood. Uh, could be compared to... Um, not quite, I don't think, like a, a, a GP, but there's not like a magic equivalent anymore. Back when I played in the forever ago, I would have said that this would have been like your states or your regionals yeah. uh, in a way. 
Um, cause like there was a time when they, they had like a state championship for magic and I used to go every year, but anyway, that these are bigger, right? So like these, these are the things where you're probably not traveling cross country, but you are definitely going to hop in a car or whatever and, and travel to these. Um, they are going to be monthly ish. So I would wager somewhere between like a month and a month and a half in between, depending on the, the season length, um, sizes of, uh, events and, and prizes and so forth will, uh, very, uh, but they did mention a prize wall for these, which I thought was interesting as well, because normally it is tournament organizers that mention prize walls and not the actual, uh, you know, game company. So th that part also jumped out to me. I think a lot of it is going to have to do that. They're going to probably be at the helm. Like, for example, Magic does pair up with entities like, or they used to like with Channel Fireball now, obviously with, with SCG very much where there's an SCG prize wall. But for a long time, a lot of the major tournaments, Magic just ran kind of themselves, right? Like, uh, or some of them were, were just them. So they had to fund the prize walls and stuff like that. And if you want to know what a prize wall is, it's basically when you're doing side events or you're doing events that reward tickets, you can then take those tickets to a prize wall and exchange them for like exclusive um variants of stuff alternate art cards shiny cards you know product deck sleeves mats all kinds of cool uh cool stuff that's kind of aside from the major tournament prize structure which they have not released yet but uh yeah this is basically your battle hardened if you're a flesh and blood fan it's your battle hardened uh i would say that it's probably gonna be between 10 and 12 of these for the year and they're gonna be all over the place so there's probably going to be like a solid six in North America and then another six around like Europe, Asia area, wherever the game is releasing is my suspicion. So I'm, I'm kind of hyped about that, frankly. I mean, that's what we have right now the, in, in terms of how we get engaged with other games. It's like, hey, there's a there's SCG con this city and there's a 5K going on there. My guess is that these sector qualifiers are going to have like 10K prize pools. Uh, might be less. Maybe it's 5K. But who knows man like I, I don't know what the what the budget is for this because usually when op is announced on a big stage like the, it comes with something like the company usually wants to you know puff up their chest and be like we're slamming a million dollars down this year in prize money flesh and blood did it magic did it a lot of these games did it. Say, Battle hey. Spirits did it recently. Yeah, yeah, Battle Spirits did it. Gwent did it back in the day. Like a million dollars. We had said this. We've said this many hey. times. It's like the. It's. it's I. The, I so, remember when there was going to be a million dollar tournament for Artifact. Yeah. Some of us are still in it for the long haul. Yeah. Well, can keep going. <laughs> You've, how many kids have you had since that was announced? Like two. I haven't had any. They were both born by then. Sure, but now they now they that they too are waiting for the long haul. Uh, yeah, they they are also waiting for the long haul. But you, I mean, you are right. We haven't heard anything about prize money. I honestly suspect that that might be something again because of the condensed window right after launch. Um, I think what will happen is when they announce their first big event for this year, they'll announce the prize pool for that event, and then at that event they'll announce what it'll be for the yeah. following year just based on the way they've trickled out info i think that that feels most like what they'll do here but next step is the regional qualifier it is slightly skinnier but taller uh if we're gonna put it that way but it's every two months or so 
uh, it's basically a bigger version of the sector qualifier. So you're going to have to, uh, I think you're going to have to qualify for the, no, they're open. I think these are open tournaments that you can play in. Uh, they award points, they award prizes, uh, prize money as well. Uh, these are going to be two-day affairs, from what I understand. It's kind of those things where you're going to have a day of Swiss and then another day of another couple of rounds of Swiss cut down to a top eight, as does most other major tournaments. These are going to be, I think these are kind of like your twenty dollars to $25,000 tournaments. These are the bigger deals. They're like the calling in flesh and blood. These are your GP level. GP, yeah. yeah. So these are going to be the bigger deals. Um and it's essentially the the way that they frame this is that these are kind of like weekend events. These are like your convention center events. You go, you have a, a weekend worth of cards. If you scrub out on day one, you have a lot of stuff that you can do on day two. You could win tickets. You could play for other stuff. There are kind of like second chance tournaments, much like the PTI events uh, that are, are coupled in with battle hardens or callings or whatever. Um, it's basically the highest level of competition that you can get without playing in the Galactic Championship. So speaking of the Galactic Championship. Hit us. Galactic Championship. Uh, we've kind of been alluding to it, but this is a point-based invitation uh, tournament. So again, if you win some of these other events, you will earn enough points to qualify for it, or you can just qualify via points through placements along the way. But it is a point-based invitational. Now, something I asked them at Gen Con was... Obviously, is there anything else for people to do if they don't qualify? And they said, absolutely, there will always be plenty of things for people to do at the events. So you can certainly expect side events, things like that. Uh, so if you don't qualify, but you still want to go to the Galactic Championship, I would highly encourage you to. Uh, the first one is scheduled in the summer. And again, because of the condensed window, the first one, uh, the 2024, is going to be an open. So this normally is going to be a points-based invitation but sounds like it's going to be an open for the first year again just because there's not enough time to run the qualifiers uh they mentioned a three-day event and then the first sector qualifier so again kind of assuming for the next tournament year is supposed to be i believe at that galactic event so like the idea is you know maybe if you scrub out of day one of the event you could play in the sector qualifier the same way like Right now, we're all preparing for uh, Worlds for Flesh and Blood, right? It's going to be in Barcelona. You're going to be there casting it. I'm going to be crying because I don't get to cast it this year. Uh, but I will be there. You'll be there. Um, but I will be there, and I'm going to be playing in a calling. So there's the World Championship, but there's also a calling, and then there's also big, massive side events as well. So that, again, like if you don't qualify or whatever, um, you have something to do. But I do love the idea that they're kicking off their next kind of calendar tournament year at that event. Um, and I think that that would be a great thing for them to do like year over year, right? Uh, it's also worth noting, just to back up, that sectors and regional tournaments are only going to debut in 2025. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we're looking at here is down the road. And uh, part of that is obviously debuting in March. You got to get your sea legs and stuff like that. Not to mention the bigger tournaments, you kind of want multiple sets involved because my suspicion is that if they kind of launched into these big tournaments it would probably be the same like two decks possibly three like we don't know what the meta is going to look like not all the cards are released but it kind of boils down to what is the meta what beats the meta what beats what beats the meta like it's just kind of like it turns into this triangle of doom kind of thing so a lot of the major stuff is going to happen down the road in 2025 i'm super hyped for all of this galactic championship being 
point-based. Uh, the first one, however, they did say the first qualifier, um, sorry, the first Galactic Championship is going to be an open championship. You just sign up. You just register. I don't know when it's going to be. It's a three-day event, but my suspicion on this, they have a cap, obviously, based on whatever convention center rules. Do you think they're going to hit like the 1,024 player cap on this? Oh, I, I'm just suggesting that number. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a good question. Um, I think it's too early to tell, personally, just because I think it's going to depend on how well it's received at release, as well as how many like local stores can get enough traction between launch in March and then whenever this is. Again, we just know summer. So like there's a big difference between a window of time of like March to June versus March to August. I suspect it will probably be late summer, personally. Again, we don't have any inside info here, so I want to clarify that. But I suspect it'll be late summer because if this is going to be their you know, one big event this year and then they're going to start doing sector and regionals starting in 2025, I think that you would want your one big one to kind of be later this year. And then you just take the holidays off, basically, and then kick things off next calendar year. That would be my guess. But um, I don't know. It's going to depend on how it's received. I would love to see it. I, I think that it's a game that is capable of seeing that kind of turnout, especially if it's an open where, you know, anybody can sign up and participate. It's going to also, I think, depend on location, right? Is it going to be easily accessible? Um, that sort of thing. A lot of the reviews that I'm hearing about this game from better players than me is that this game does have a lot of competitive legs to it, that it's very, it's layered so there's a lot of engagement. There's a lot of decision-making agency in terms of how you play. So the elite card players of, of the world are not going to feel painted into a corner by things like RNG or card draw or, you know, I missed my two drop, so I'm dead. Or I missed the land draw, so I'm, I'm dead. Like, those are sometimes what would turn somebody away from a game. So from the design aspect of the game, the rule set, it's appealing. The... Other part of it is accessibility to the game, which I don't think it's sold out anywhere yet on pre-sale. I think it's going to be fine to, to acquire. It's going to be accessible for players. The other element is going to be prize money. And I'm going to put this next to another game that you actually did work for, Battle Spirit Saga. The Battle Spirit Saga Pro Tour Charmer, how many people signed up for that thing? Or how many people played in it? Um, that's a good question. Like, was I, it 500, 600? It, it, I, I feel like it was, uh, it was definitely more than a couple hundred, but it didn't feel like as large as Pro Tour Baltimore for Flesh and Blood did. Um, um, and I don't remember off the top of my head what any sort of like final cap was. Um, if I had to guess, I think it was somewhere in the like two to 300 at uh, that Pro Tour event in New Jersey. I mean, like Pro, like Pro Tour Baltimore had at one point between the calling and and Pro Tour had something like fifteen hundred concurrent players, like playing Flesh and Blood at the same time, right? Yeah, in two separate tournaments, which is enormous. I am going to be exceptionally optimistic here and think that the, if if the location is right and there's nothing competing with it on, on that particular weekend. And the prize money is what they are setting out to put a standard. Like, 
Pro Tour winner at uh, Battle Spirit Saga was what, 100K? Or like it was like, or that was the prize pool, 100K or something like that. You know, the, these these Pro Tours for Flesh and Blood, same thing, 100 or 200K. Like, they're big deals. People come out for this stuff. If though, if location, um, accessibility, and prize money all align, I would not be surprised to see this tournament push 800 to 1,000 people. And I'm saying that, I, you know, completely understanding that I want this game to succeed and that I, I've got these rosy colored glasses on because it's Star Wars and I love this game already. But, I mean, I've seen less popular games get incredible amounts of players to play it because of one of those factors being being attractive, be it prize yeah. money or whatever. But a lot is going to hinge on prize money because if the, if the Galactic Championship is like a $20,000 tournament, a lot of people are not going to roll the dice. But if they're like, hey, I finished like 47th and I got 500 US out of this, that pays for you know my flight. I'm okay with that. People are going to show up for this thing. I I wouldn't be surprised if like this is in the 750 to 1,000 player range. I think it will depend on, like I said, so many factors, right? Pricing is going to be a big one. Location will be a big one. Um, hey, I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, when your game is in its infancy, where you have the event might make or break whether oh, yeah. somebody wants to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I know that's unfair to the game, but like, that's just the reality. Like even people who are very entrenched in some of the games that I play based on the location, they'll be like, no, I'm skipping that. Right. And these are people who like actively play the game. So I do think that'll be a big part of it. Um, yeah. I, I want to be optimistic, but I also like, I'm trying to look at it objectively and the short window and the fact that it's a new game, um, you know, five five hundred might still be a success. Oh, you know five hundred I mean? is absolutely a success. Uh, like, and don't get me wrong here. And so, like, I just, I'm I'm trying to temper my my own hope because I've I've had my heart crushed too many times by games that I have fallen in love with, and so I I'm trying to tell myself, you know, it it's gonna be okay one way or the other. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> Let's uh, let's go on to some of the other little notes that they dropped on us because we squeezed them pretty hard on this during the stream and um, we got some pretty tasty juice out of them. Number one being there will be a judge program, which I think was a given. I think that that if you're having major tournaments, you're going to need someone to settle disputes and, and gameplay related. And in order to do that, you need to have a judge program. I don't think there's any surprises there. I think that's fine. Just, I hope you're a better, if you're a judge, a better negotiator than Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan who started when they were sent to help with negotiation. Yeah, first thing, get poisoned. <laughs> Second thing, kill everything. Um, yeah. And use force speed for one time only. Never again. Um, the next thing is that they're developing a website that will have all your trackables, your points, your qualifier points, your performance, all that stuff. Uh, very similar to what the old DCI number was, but uh, better uh, better parallel would be the gem system from Flesh and Blood, where you can go, you can log in, you can have an events locator, which they're going to have. You can find out all your play history, the points you've acquired, how many qualifiers you've qualified for, etc., 
which is just a, a necessary a necessary thing. The way that he described it, I think it was uh, uh, was it Josh um, who described it was basically saying that if you're if you're going to be it, like we live in the video game era where we all have achievements and stuff. It's nice to look at these things. It's nice to be able to, like, why would you want to achieve things if you can't go and sort of marvel at your own achievements? I'm paraphrasing there, but that's kind of, makes sense to me. Dude, the amount of times I go back to my gem account to look at a, uh, a tournament I played in where I beat either a loudmouth a-hole player or a renowned world-class player, and I look, I'm like, man, that was a good tournament. Like, I like looking at that stuff. It's nice to reminisce and go back. I like to go back because then I too can be like, oh yeah, I'm undefeated against person who's a million times better than me, but I beat them one time, yeah. you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm undefeated against them. <laughs> I've played against Michael Hamilton exactly once in my life. And I have beaten him exactly once in my life. I am undefeated against Michael Hamilton, the world uh, champion of flesh and blood. Uh, that is me with Brody Spurlock. And I take every opportunity I can to remind him of it. <laughs> I'm sure he's happy about it too. He's like, yeah, you got me. Yeah. Oh, you got you me. You know what? Honestly, that was one of the best experiences. Uh, I played against him and his mom in the same tournament and I be beat them both, but they were both wonderful people. Um, it was one of the best first impressions and I'm so happy that he has found success in flesh and blood. Uh, just a good kid. Yeah. He's awesome. Uh, here's a big one. This is a big one. I have yeah. been beating this drum for months. I said, I want, I said, I said it, you can go back. I said it multiple times. This game feels like a fast paced game, which means best of three. And if it's best of three, I, I want a sideboard and they have announced and confirmed that it's going to be best of three where, when able, which is probably going to be the majority of them. And there's going to be a sideboard. Hallelujah. I love this. Thanks. I hate it. Too bad. Too freaking bad. Listen, seeing the way that the game has been designed, um, it makes sense. As you said, and you've rightfully so been calling it, the game is fast enough that it really feels like it was designed to be a best of three. And nine times out of 10, if you're going to do a best of three, there's going to be some sort of sideboard involved just because that's the industry standard and has been for like the last 30 years. It's not something that I am a fan of. Uh, I'm just generally very anti sideboard because I think it's a game design crutch. And if you are going to sideboard, I prefer it to be like flesh and blood where you you make that decision ahead of time, but then you go into piloting your deck. It doesn't become this you know can i race to my silver bullets game two and game three faster sort of thing not to say that this game will have that problem i haven't seen anything that would be uh overly a red flag in that regard um so i'm choosing to remain positive uh and and hopeful on that front but just as a general rule i am a and i'm very open about it i'm just a very anti-sideboard person you're an you're an anti-sideite sure you're a raging anti-sidite um it's all good um because i win so <laughs> i i mean i don't win but i'm happy that it's best I, of three no, you said you win and i will remember that when we when we meet up for our first games and i take a victory or three and you i will, will remind you you will uh the, part of the logic behind it also is that they mentioned that because the game was a little bit faster paced uh that they don't and they also don't want players to feel like they 
got bounced out of a tournament because one game they drop they drew poorly poorly. Trust me, I've done enough ranked Magic Limited where I'm like, I I had absolutely no opportunity to win this game. I kept a three land hand and I drew new no lands for ten turns and I did what I could. This game was never within my reach. And it's just the way to go. Now, the other thing about this is that they also mentioned how long our round's going to be. They're still working on that, which is kind of a scary situation. Because to me, that means that the average game time is like 17 to 20 minutes, which means if you want an hour-long round, which is the magic number, the magic number technically is like 50 minutes, plus plus yeah. plus the five-minute overrun time, plus the five minutes for pairings and getting to sat, sit at your table. If it's like a 17 to 20 minute game, there's not much leeway, which means that if you have to push around to being like a, an hour 10, that throws a lot of things off. But beyond that, um, what that does also is it introduces another skill to a player, which is know when to fold a mace. Um, yeah. this, this is one of the major, major tips that I got because this weekend I'm playing in my first ever Pokemon tournament. And one of the tips I got from multiple sources, you know, that were completely separate from one another, they all said, be mindful of the clock, scoop if it's, if it's, if you have less than 25% chance of winning a game, because you will, if you play it out, you're burning the clock and you might not have a chance to win the next match. And if it goes, you know, loss, draw, whatever, you're out. So... This might be the same scenario where it's like, oh, crap, I won game one, but game two is falling way behind. We only have 20 minutes left. I'm just going to scoop. Like, I think so that's going to be important. One of the interesting bits about just the design of this game is that it does require you to deploy your leader and your base because this this conversation is reminding me of one of the coolest, uh, like, mental things that I'd ever seen somebody do. It was at a Magic event, and... Game one of the, of the match, the watched this person mulligan down to four, realized even at four, like their hand is garbage, right? So they mulliganed all the way to zero on purpose on game one and then made their opponent still go through their turns where they were playing stuff out while they draw turn pass until they got, a you know, six or seven turns in and they had a relatively like good idea of what their deck was. And then they're like, all right, I can see. Let's go to game two. And so they got to sideboard and their opponent was blind I had no idea what they were running. I was like, oh, man, that is like if you know you've already mulliganed and you have no shot game one, that is like such a heads up move. And Big time. You know, it's, it's a little little a bit of a shame that you can't see like that, you know, 200 IQ play here because you're going to have to put your base down in your leader. But um, yeah, uh, knowing when to concede is absolutely a skill. One hundred percent. I've heard, I think, from Ten and Grace, Ten and Brian Basoko were telling me about how they would play in tournaments where I think it was it was either Brian or Tannen where like turn one Thoughtseize and their hand was garbage like on round like game one of a, of a and he's like uh, in response I concede I don't want to give you any information because I'm probably not winning this matchup anyways so yep. and I'm going in knowing that you're this deck and you don't know so that's an advantage to me you're absolutely correct you're totally spot on correct about this so um, yeah man Knowing when to fold them is a very important skill set in, in many card games. Um, next order of business, I think that this is very significant. Yeah, it is. But it so here's the interesting bit. Uh, 
it's significant and yet it's not and yet it is uh there's there, there's so much context and complexity to just saying that they've announced there's a standard rotation right not that much of a, a a shock if you've played card games a lot of card games have some sort of standard rotation it's a way to keep uh the pool fresh make new players uh potentially have a, an easy way to you know access the game and not feel like they have to get stuff from sets that are out of print or you know, or five or 10 years old or whatever. So standard rotation, nothing new, but it's very rare that a game announces there's going to be one before the game is even out. And so while they're not announcing anything groundbreaking, just them saying it is itself groundbreaking because most games say, I don't know, we'll see how it goes. You know, we're not, we're not that worried about it. And, and now if you're wondering why it matters, you're saying, okay, well, like I could see why some games will say, hey, we just want to make it through the first year or two. Who cares? This tells me that they've put enough forethought into the longevity of the game, you know, between some of the other stuff we've already seen in terms of planning anyway. But this is just another thing. If I'm drawing up a checklist of all the reasons that I think that Fantasy Flight Games is taking this game more seriously than they have other games of theirs in the past... This would be another thing on my checklist. They have already thought about it, addressed it, planned for it. That To me, that's a good thing. That's a good sign. It's a very good sign. I have been involved with uh, card games that, like Gwent, for example, that I have been the chief voice of implementing a standard rotation into that game for many years because Power Creep was one of the biggest, biggest boons to that game. I love that game dearly. And it's one of those situations where I will admit when I'm wrong, hundred percent it it it's no i'm not a it's nothing to do with pride but that was one thing where i kept telling them that they are absolutely dead spot on wrong about not doing standard rotation for that game and what's funny about that is that after the game announced that they were going into maintenance mode that they were no longer producing content they're like well maybe one of the ways that we can make it fresh is by implementing a rotation i said oh like almost like a standard rotation imagine if we did that years ago that's a whole other story. Long story short, for those who are doubters of what standard rotation does, it is addition by subtraction. And for those who are like, well, now I have cards that can't be played, wrong, because they implement other formats that have those cards legal. Or they do reprints where the cards that you've had previously might be back to being relevant. Th these things happen. It's, trust me, if your concern about FFG and Star Wars Unlimited is that you're worried about FFG dropping the game or not having a long-term plan. Like Charmer said, if they're talking standard rotation, that is that is a, a foundational rock of long-term success. That's what you have to have. Every successful blockbuster card game has a standard rotation. Magic, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, uh, freaking hearthstone they all have standard rotations because it's necessary so and if, and if you don't have a standard rotation you have a system that mimics it so that the same basic like functionality of a rotation occurs now i'm mentioning that because you might be you know somebody who follows flake for flesh and blood for example and you're saying well flesh and blood is an eternal format and you're technically right but the living legend system is essentially a standard rotation as we are in the process of seeing Tales of Aria be completely rotated out, essentially, uh, because of that system. Dude, that set, still my still my favorite set, but 
now you know why, man. Like that set, that set came in swinging, dude. That thing threw through hands dude um yeah but you're right and like the other thing about it is like there is like an eternal format in that game it's called the living legend format where every hero every card everything ever printed is legal so go have at it and they're supporting it with major tournaments surrounding it so again if you're looking at standard rotation from a lens of negativity that, that it's a bad thing i'm going to contest that maybe you haven't been exposed to standard rotation and what it weeds out and what it opens up because in other card games like Gwent the amount of conversations I've had with their developers of like well we wanted to develop cards xyz but we couldn't because because card a b and c exist but if they weren't there then we can do some crazy stuff but the fact that card a interacts with card y it breaks the game so we can't do it but if you have a rotation suddenly that card a being out of the pool opens up the design space for cards xyz and that's that's addition by subtraction in that regard um yeah man and i think the last little bit here is the fact that yes they're gonna have a band list uh nobody i think is as aggressive with bands and suspensions like flesh and blood is in my opinion um but that's because they don't have a standard rotation so they kind of have to keep things in check but my suspicion, and they, uh, Josh Massey mentioned that the design team, the testing team are like second to none at uh, FFG. I'm not going to even uh, say that they're nothing but amazing. Every card game is going to say that they have the best testing team in the world. But what he did say that I truly believe that makes sense is he's like, no matter who they have in the testing room, it pales in comparison to the whole freaking world playing the game. And we've seen this because there have been cards mm-hmm. in all the card games we've ever played where we always say, how did this get past testing? Well, the fact is, is that if you've got eight testers playing 40 hours a week, that that amount of man hours is not the same amount of hours as you get in one tournament in one calling. So that's kind of how it goes. So against the the sea of humanity that are going to be playing in the game, somebody's going to figure something out. There's a lot of smart minds out there who are not on the testing team who are looking to uh, to make waves. And there's just that byproduct of, you know, sometimes you create a card with a specific intention, like you create it within the vacuum of how it interacts with a certain set, right? Like when you're doing set design, you're designing things not just you know, for constructed, but you're like, hey, I'm going to include this uncommon and it's, you know, meant to fill a role in the draft or the limited experience, right? Then, you know, six months down the road, the next set releases and that card is interacting in a way that you weren't expecting because when you designed it originally, you had it in mind for one role, you tested it for that role. And then during, you know, design and, and testing, whatever, for the next set, it was just overlooked, right? Because the more cards you release, the greater your number of variables becomes. And that means all of your interactions, permutations, et cetera, essentially grows exponentially every time you make a new set. So it's another reason why the standard rotation is so important because it limits the pool that, you know, you have to focus on. I mean, you still want to focus on everything, but you, you really want to eagle eye that experience, right? Cause it's a lot easier to maintain. So overall, I'm very excited. I think that the OP system is what I wanted it to be. 
Um, you're going to like this. I'm going to like this. Hopefully, people out there are going to like this. They were asked whether these are going to be broadcasted, whether they're going to be streamed with commentary. And they said every one of their main events is going to be streamed. That's awesome. And again, obviously, there's bias here because this is what we do for a profession. But it's it's an extra layer of legitimacy for a game, and it's a extra layer of marketing for a game. When you broadcast a game, you you lift up so many different elements of the game. You lift up the players who are playing it. You lift up uh, it's an uh, an exi- uh, an exhibition of like what the game can be at its highest level to see the the interactions, the the intricacy and um the complexity of the game you know you put on a good show it's entertaining it does it does so much so that's that's really good that's a that's a good thing because i when lorcana came out and they said that they weren't going to have any like broadcasting or tournaments or whatever that kind of immediately sullied the i don't say the legitimacy of the game it's a legitimate game obviously but it kind of sullied like the fact that they wanted to be a tcg and not just um sell packs you know yeah no i mean i i fully get it i mean even and i think the biggest issue there is that like when you look across the aisle at something like pokemon which is probably the biggest direct competitor they run events all the time for like all different age groups and they just had like an amazing big world championship in japan and then when lorcano was like hey you know we're not going to do that yeah i i think caught some folks by surprise because that's just like the industry expectation at this point all right, so that does it for the FFG stream relating to the organized play system. I think that a lot of people are satisfied, if not ex- you know exuberant about it. I think that they they kind of nailed it, and they have been very adamant that they're serious about this, and they've also been humble and understanding that they've got you know they've got some stuff that they got to make up for, like you know some. Uh, previous games that didn't quite make it past where they wanted to but i am very confident that this is a game that we are going to see five years down the road with like oh you know here's world championship number number five and it's like oh my god you know that's awesome like is this person going to go for their third world championship is this person going for their first i'm excited for the narratives we're going to create and the players that are going to emerge out of this and become household names these types of systems charmer I mean, you got to agree that this is what essentially shapes communities and shapes the the culture, the narrative surrounding games. If it wasn't for Flesh and Blood OP, for Magic OP, there's a lot of names, a lot of content creators, there's a lot of dialogue and narrative that we would be missing that robs the game of heart and soul. So I'm super excited about this. I, I am as well, and it's not even just those games. It's literally every game that I've ever covered. There's always this narrative that it it creates a narrative of like hey these are the players that are doing well but there's also like other narratives just like there is in traditional sports right there's a storytelling to it because sometimes you have these people that you know they show up and you know they're always the runner-up and so when they finally win their big event right like it's it's the underdog story or it's like hey you know they they finally got there it's it, it it's just fun and it's it's difficult to explain how that feels if you're not somebody who's involved in that unless you're there and you experience it. And that's why I say it's very much like a sporting event. And I'm I'm looking forward to it for 
uh, this game for sure. Well, how about this? How about this, Charmer? Let's say we're coming up on the Galactic Championship. You've got your ticket booked. You're on your way there. Okay. But I forgot and I booked with Air Canada. <laughs> uh, I was on the phone with him today, actually. Uh, very nice person, though, that I spoke to. It's all good. Don't you worry about it. Essentially, that's um, not an important story. But yeah, you know what? Sure. And and then you're and then you get a text message for the nine hundredth time that day that your gates changed and you're delayed. You're not me, so you'll get there on time. But if you were me, what would you say? I have a very bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. I've got a bad feeling about it. Hey. Quiet. It oh. is the bad feeling mailbag. We got a bunch of uh, submissions this week, so we thank you very much for that. Again, this is going to be an XL episode just because we had a pretty big conversation. Minus one voice on the show this week, Charmer, plus like 30 minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, that's my fault. I I get more long-winded when there's not two of you to beat me down. And this was also just a really big week. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say that you and I and Doa have all been waiting for the OP announcement, and now we get to talk about it. And I can't imagine how long this episode would have been if there were all three of us. Oh. It's almost kind of a, like, I love you. I love you, Doa, but it's almost kind of a blessing that it was only two of us because this is already going along and I could still talk about it. We can. Uh, so for the Bad Feeling Mailbag, you can contact us. Uh, send us your questions, wamparadiopodcast at gmail.com. We've been getting a lot of uh, submissions through there, so thank you so much. You can uh, shoot us a message on Twitter, at Radio. Message us personally or DM us uh, on Discord if you find us. We're very receptive. The first question is from Alessandro Sutton. Uh, saying, hey guys, I'm thoroughly enjoying the gameplay mechanics of Star Wars Unlimited so far, but one aspect has me concerned. Leaders are hugely influential, providing pivotal tempo swings and recurring value. This is great thematically, but my concern is that because each leader deploys on the same turn every game, it might cause uh, game plans to be very consistent and therefore games feel very samey. I'd like to hear your thoughts about this and would also like to know if Charmer misses Tessel. Thank you from Alessandro. Okay, so. So, so this is actually Al. This is a, you can call me Al from the Tessel days. Oh. This is, this is a homie. Yeah. Oh, well, hit it up, buddy. If this is a, if this is homie Al, then. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is homie Al. Uh, first, yes. Uh, of course, I miss the Elder Scrolls Legends. It was a fantastic community and I sincerely hope that so many of the people that played that game will pick this up and start playing it because I would love one, the excuse to see a bunch of them again, but also I would love to see what some of the best players in that game could do with a game like this because they are still different, but they're very similar. So I would love to be able to at an event, you know, call games for Caracon Jewel or Thule Deer or, or Widow or, uh, uh, Jason, again, Jason, I ran into him at Gen Con. I've mentioned it before on this podcast. He's somebody who, uh, he was a competitive player in Tessel, did very well in the first Master Series, and then went on to become a game designer for that game, and now he still designs games. So um, I he's tried the game out at my recommendation, said he loved it. I really hope he plays, and I, I get a chance to uh, call him playing the game again because I, I miss all of my Tesla crowd. I'm even trying to sell Silver Fuse on it, and she doesn't even... She likes digital games, not physical, but I'm like, hey, you got to do this. So 
that's the answer to that portion. But I will say regarding the gameplay mechanics, I don't feel like it'll be too samey because even though they are likely deploying on the same turn one, there's no guarantee you'll always want to do that because the game state might be different. Uh, what I mean by that is, is that if you have uh, an early to deploy leader, somebody who costs, you know, three, four, five. If your opponent has a fast start, you might not want to deploy them right away if it means that you're just going to turn around and lose your unit because they have a strong presence in, say, the ground arena. Whereas if they have a slower start or they don't have as good of a hand, then perhaps you do deploy it on curve as opposed to waiting for an opportune moment. Um, I also think that there are going to be some decks that want to deploy their leader on curve every time. I, I'm looking at the Han Solo leader, right? You're looking at his ramping up means that you can pretty consistently have a, a big tempo swing turn, and you'll want to do that and maximize that as much as possible pretty much every game. But then when you look at like Darth Vader uh, from the starter decks or... Uh, even still, I'm looking at like Grand Inquisitor, things like that. Uh, you might not be deploying them on curve every time because sometimes you might value their activation over the actual unit. Darth Vader, if if you're in a matchup where your opponent has a bunch of shields, um, being able to ping off any shield without having to worry about getting a unit into trouble or whatever might just be better uh, in that game state, right? Uh, the Inquisitor also feels very much like an aggressive leader, but has a relatively high cost. And I could see you build decks where you never even get to the resources to deploy them. Or if you do, it's very rare. Um, I, I think that there's just a lot of unknowns yet. And then worst case scenario. So here's my last thought. Worst case scenario. Yeah, the leader deploys on the same turn every time, but we still have 50 other cards in a deck. Like, I'm not worried about it being too samey. I think it'll be fine. I agree. I mean, there's always the attractive element of playing your leader on curve in order to just maintain. But at the same time, like like you said, Sharper, like if you're throwing him into the into a shark pit, like it's not always the best option uh, option here. The sameness of this, I think, is um, I don't think it's that dangerous because like you mentioned, you don't see your whole deck. So like the cards you draw, the games are going to feel different. It's not like Gwent where your opening hand, you're looking at like 35 to 40% of your deck in your opening hand. So, and then as you're drawing cards and doing stuff, it things do kind of feel samey in that regard. But I don't worry about this at all. This never even crossed my mind. Well, and I was just about to say, I think one of the reasons that you and I are probably more comfortable is because we do have uh, a lot of experience playing Flesh and Blood. And so if you're num somebody who's never played that game, you might not realize that with that game, you start with your hero. So that's always the same when you pick that as your hero, very similar to this, but also your equipment and your equipment suite very rarely changes. And that can be anywhere between, you know, five to six other pieces on the board every game at the start of the game, right? Like you start with a bunch of stuff already in play and that never really feels like super samey. Like there are definitely matchups that feel the same like in how you navigate them, but every turn still feels impactful and every experience still feels unique. So you I think this about, game will do it fine. You want to talk about sameness? Play against a Viscerai that goes Mavrian Skies, Shrilla Skull Form, Rosetta Thorn. Mavrian Skies... Show the skull form. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, did you 
I, you and I pronounce that differently. I pronounce that Starvo oh. reveal Voltron dominate for nine swing hammer. Yeah, which is <laughs> clearly superior. <laughs> yeah, which is clear because in that one, you need three cards in your hand. But for the other one, you only need two. That's why yeah. Starvo was a bigger skill uh, skill hero than anything else. But yeah, um, I don't worry about it, in all honesty, Alessandro. So, uh, But thank you for the submission, big time. Next up, friend of the show. Friend of the show, Kenny White, sent us a, a message. Yeah, Kenny says, hey, guys, looking forward to every Saturday. You guys have been crushing the content. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also a day one Star Wars CCG player, so definitely hitting my nostalgia with all the references. My question is, how do you feel about the marketing for this game? I feel like we are only a few months away from release, and the only big website I've seen an article on is the one a few weeks ago from IGN. I've asked a couple of pretty big card gamers about SWU on their streams. I'm talking pros, Hall of Famers, and neither of them had heard about SWU yet. Hopefully I put it on their radar, but I'm personally a little worried. Thanks again, Kenny. So Kenny, Kenny submits a lot of questions to the show. I actually sent Kenny a surprise. I sent him one of our sealed packs of, uh, I sent him a sealed pack of cards because uh, Kenny does some nice things. So I sent him one of those as a thank you. But Kenny, it is definitely a concern because it's a concern and it's not. And the reason why I think it's not a concern is because I don't think it needs that kind of massive attention. I don't think the game is going to need uh, the attention of the big streamers, the big players, the whatever. First of all, Kenny, we're pretty big streamers here, and we've heard of the game. No, I know. I'm being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I just like, you know, Kenny's like, hey, I spoke to some important people. <laughs> they, yeah. they heard of the game. What are you freaking ants doing about it? And it's like, we know that's not the intent, Kenny. We, we definitely know. Um, the thing, the thing about it is also when you're um, a major streamer in a certain pool of cards, you're, you are constantly being inundated and bombarded with stuff relating to the card game that you are very intimately associated with that oftentimes you do not hear about other card games or you do not, you know, what are you, what are you looking at? Well, I was going to say, and when you do hear about stuff, you're also usually inundated with like a bunch of indie games that want you to cover. And so you start drowning them out as well. Basically until, until one of your peers comes forward and says, Hey, did you hear there's a new star Wars card game? It's not the same as the, the folks hitting your email. You know the, what I mean? Correct. Correct. Because a lot of the times, and this is a, an, an interesting facet here is that star Wars U is kind of approaching this as like, we don't really need them. So we're not going to go after them. And that can feel maybe a little bit arrogant to that degree, in that regard, but I don't think that that's their intent. I think their intent here is that they are eventually going to start partnering up with content creators and things of that nature. But I think it's still a little bit early. The pre-orders have started, and that's now, I think, when things can start to get a little bit more ramped up. But everything leading up until like this week, I think, was all kosher because they didn't really have much to even entice people with it's like well we can't tell you about the op system we can't tell you about the prize pool we don't have a calendar so they can't even approach them with anything when 
Charmer or Doe or myself are approached by other card games about stuff like that, um, the first question is, is like, oftentimes it's like, okay, tell us about your, tell me about your game. And if you mention the term NFT, I'm not interested. And if you want me to sell it, be a salesman for it, I'm not interested. If I'm working on commission, I'm not interested, things like that. That's sort of the first barrier, which Charmer mentioned. So sometimes these things just get thrown by the wayside. The marketing aspect with the, um, with like articles and stuff written about it, I will say this. I, I don't think it's a secret anymore, but I worked for LSS on contract for about six months. I was writing their press releases and I was their media relations person uh, dealing with precisely what you're talking about, the IGNs, the polygons, the whatever. I was connecting with these entities to entice them to give us a spotlight on stuff. And I will tell you this, it was not easy even with a game like Flesh and Blood that had two years of competitive play and millions of dollars given away for prize money under their belt. They're like, well, we're not sure about it. So a game like FFG Star Wars Unlimited might still be uh, something that they have a limited amount of stuff that they want to talk about because they know they're always going to hit it out of the park with Pokemon, with Magic, with other stuff. So they don't want to give up real estate on their website for minimal for less clicks they don't want to pay a writer the same amount for an article if they're going to get 20 percent of the clicks for it that's part of business now the reason why ign put out an article i'll just be completely transparent here i don't know like i'm not an insider on this my suspicion is because they approached ign and said we are going to give you a spoiler card because when i was at flesh and blood that was oftentimes that was the yeah, that was the deal. You want you want something that's exclusive because that will drive the traffic. Bingo, absolutely. Yep. So, um, unfortunately, I don't have an answer that's going to inspire confidence in for you in this in this capacity because I don't think that this game is going to be getting a crap ton of articles independently written about it until it has some major tournaments in in its in the books because. It's not Lorcana. Let's be real here. And it's not one of the the big 3 that are already out there. And I'll I'll just go further and I'll say I'm not convinced Lorcana would have got the attention that it had received if they didn't do the D23 promos and they blew up in price. If the D23 promos weren't like thousands of dollars by the time that Lorcana started doing like other conventions or whatever, I legitimately don't think that there's like nearly the hype. But when you consider they surprise released those and then like the next day on the secondary market, they were thousands of dollars and then they went radio silent for a long time. Then there was, you know, the lawsuit thing. And then they were like, okay, well now we're going to do Gen Con and there will be promos. And also a bunch of stuff is sold out. Like it was, it was the perfect storm of like stuff. But if you go all the way back to, you know, if those D23 promos, like they give them out and people are like, oh, I guess there's a card game. Who cares? Like none of that stuff snowballs. So when I look at this game, um, I will say this is actually kind of an interesting question because I would have said uh, four days ago that I was very concerned just because I have personally covered a lot of other card games in the past where I felt like the IP should be enough to carry them through the rough patches. 
Uh, Elder Scrolls Legends is a great example. Bethesda is very well known. The Elder Scrolls franchise is very beloved. They were making a card game and it wasn't even just that it wasn't well received. It was literally like Bethesda was doing marketing. But then when I would talk to other card game players, they were like, I didn't even know there was an Elder Scrolls card game. Same thing with the artifact, right? Artifact, obviously, uh, Valve behind it, Richard Garfield helping design the first set. Everyone's like, oh, it's going to be the next big thing. And then like it was not super well received. And I think part of that was because Valve is very anti-marketing for the most part. Like they'll do the kind of the bare minimum. That's just their company mantra. So I would have been very concerned because I don't think IP, even with something like Star Wars, is enough to carry a game on its own. Thankfully, FFG has been showing me that they have a, a plan for a lot of these things. But what changed for me this weekend and what has given me more hope is, and this is going to sound dumb, but it's the fact that they were at TwitchCon doing demos. I never would have even imagined a physical card game that wasn't Magic being at TwitchCon doing that. And the only reason that Magic does it is because they have MTG Arena, right? So like they actually have a reason to be at Twitch because they have that video game side. But the fact that they were like, hey, we know that card gamers show up to this and we also know that there's just gamers in general. Let's go and do demos all weekend blew my mind. I legitimately would have been excited and I would have went to TwitchCon if I would have known they were going to have a booth. Right. I I feel like that says to me that, yeah, maybe they haven't done the reaching out yet. Um, but the fact that a they have Xander on staff, which is not something that they've had in the past for games. Right. They have somebody meant to reach out to content creators. Um, they went to TwitchCon. I, I think that what we should expect is more marketing um, around Christmas time and definitely into the new year. Right. Right now, pre-orders are up. But the reality is, is that a lot of folks are are focused on getting ready for the holidays and the game still doesn't come out till March. So around Christmas time, when people have, you know, maybe some Christmas gift money and they yeah. are looking to spend it, why not remind them, hey, this year is when we're kicking off this new Star Wars game, you know, maybe put down a pre-order, right? And then that's when I think that we're really going to see the the marketing ramp up personally. I agree with you there. I think that the, you're going to see the marketing ramp up in December where the people who are going to get their Christmas money and move it into January and be like, do I want to spend it now? Or do I want to slam down a pre-order for, there is also, um, and again, it's going to sound kind of dumb because really it's the difference of, you know, a handful of days, but there is something very different between being able to say releasing this year and releasing next year. Yes. You're so right. Once we cross that threshold and they're like, Hey, coming out this year, Star Wars Unlimited, that gets you immediately more hyped. Whereas even now, you know, it's not that far away. But like if I say to people, hey, it comes out next year, meant it, we, you know, we, we have less than two months left uh, re realistically. I mean, we're at the end of October, right? So we have like two months left in the calendar year or whatever. But I, I have people that just their eyes glaze over and they're off in La La Land. They're like, oh, next year. Like, I can't even think about, you know, two days from now, mate. And you're telling me about a card game that comes out next year. I don't care. But the moment you cross January 1st and you can say, hey, coming out like just later this year, Star Wars Unlimited, it it makes a difference. And so I, I really feel like that's when you're going to see more drive for this. Dude, like I'm going to just be blunt here. It, it, it is just this. It It's just words, but you're right, because so my birthday is in January. But to me, it could be December 
30th. And I'd be like, well, it's next year. It doesn't matter. And then as soon as like, it's I'm like, oh my God, Rubble's there. Like it's just this, you, it's this mental thing that you, this mental hurdle you clear. But yeah, Kenny, just to sort of put it all together. Um, a lot of these articles are kind of, uh, they're, they're, uh, what's the, what's the word? Um, oh my God. What's the sign you put up when you don't want people to come to your, to your house and, and no trespassing signs, not, not trespassing when they want you, when you don't want them to <laughs> no sell soliciting. It. No soliciting. Yes. A lot of these articles are kind of solicited by the companies They're the, the companies like IGN, Polygon, et cetera. They are approached by the company saying, Hey, you probably want to talk to us about this because I've written dozens of press releases that go to these people and say, hey, you might want to write an article about this thing coming up. Here's all the information you would need. And that's kind of how what, what lights the fires under these. Um, but at the same time, they're a business. They need clicks. They need yeah. views. And a new game doesn't get them clicks. Magic gets some clicks. Digimon or uh, Pokemon gets them clicks. Things like that get them clicks um but yeah they will be doing this stuff though i mean i i we don't have any inside information but every card game is going to be reaching out to people of influence you're going to see the tweets come out the care packages go out things like that so other people of influence besides you and i no well hold on a second we automatically excluded each other because we said influence of which we have none i think our biggest I, I would call it a stain you know, would say it would be the whole daddy Schaefer thing. That's our influence. Yeah. Well, maybe DJ Duster or whatever, but the, the reality is, is like you and I joke, but I, I will tell you personally, as somebody who has done content creation and uh, broadcast coverage for card games for a long time, the absolute like best compliments that I ever get is when I go to any event and somebody's like, Hey man, I just want to tell you, I started playing this game because of you. Right. To me, like that's the, the best compliment, because that means that I loved something and somebody said, hey, he's passionate. He loved it. I'm going to check it out. And then they fell in love with it, too. So that does happen. As much as I like to joke that you and I have no influence, I do get that from time to time, like at tournaments or whatever. And that does feel pretty good. I'll say this whenever somebody's like, hey, I dug out some old Star Wars CCG cards because you won't stop talking about them. And then in my mind, I'm like. Please give them to me. Please give them to me. Please give them to me. Never works. <laughs> Never works. All right. That was a monstrous sized episode, but I think that we had a lot of good stuff to say there. So again, thank you, Kenny. Thank you to everybody who submits to the Wampa mailbag, the bad feeling mailbag every week. You can submit your question to Wampa Radio Podcast at gmail.com. If we really like your question, we might send you a pack of cards. Can you believe that? Can you freaking believe that uh you can also tweet at us at wampa radio you can reach me at watch flake you could reach this doofus at that charm 3r and uh yeah this is another opportunity i guess we we are so humbled by the positivity and the kind words and just the reach that we have with this community it has been exceptional to see how how we have been received and it means a lot to us we're going to parlay that and ask you if you could take those kind words subscribe to the youtube channel uh it is criminally low for the amount of people who love us here and we appreciate that as well as on whatever platform you listen to us audio wise please leave us a five-star review i cannot stress this enough 
for zero dollars, that is what the algorithm eats. Okay, it's like, imagine going to the petting zoo and not having to buy the pellets because it just eats five-star reviews. So you can go up to that chicken coop or that goat pen or or whatever it is. We, we are definitely goats. That's why I started laughing. I was like, you and I, were, we're billy goats in this analogy, yeah. 100%. We'll, we'll eat the tin cans, but feed the good animals the five-star reviews. Nonetheless, it would really help us out. And you have done so, many of you have, and it really means a lot to us. If you got to take a minute to show appreciation, that's the way to do it. Charmer, are you locked? Are you loaded? As the Jats music plays, hit us with the out. May the force be with you.